Hudson. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. The question that this stealth plan presents Americans with, once we know it, is at one level quite simple. Do we want to live in a cosmetically updated version of mid-century Virginia? A place that crushed democracy, prevented collective organizing, and suppressed human dignity to allow its elites free reign? And we have to ask ourselves, is what this cause seeks the kind of country that we want to live in and bequeath to our children and future generations? That is the real public choice. And if we delay our response much longer, those who are imposing their stark utopia will choose for us. That's Nancy McLean. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Nancy McLean on the origins of radical right-wing power. The history of the anti-government and anti-democratic politics that have transformed the United States in recent years is largely obscured from view. The radical rights agenda includes suppression of voting rights, privatization of everything from schools to Medicare to Social Security to public lands, elimination of unions and limiting majority rule. Core beliefs also include there's no problem tax cuts won't solve and that the best kind of regulation is no regulation. Let industry decide. And the intellectual godfather of this extreme right-wing thinking, someone you've probably never heard of, James McGill Buchanan, a Nobel Prize winning economist. And the money to promote his ideas comes mostly from billionaire Charles Koch. These ideological positions have moved from beyond the fringe to where they are openly discussed and legislation is proposed. If these forces get their way, democracy will be in chains. Our guest today is Nancy McLean. She's the award-winning author of Behind the Mask of Chivalry, Freedom is Not Enough, and Democracy in Chains. She's Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. She spoke in Madison, Wisconsin, at an event organized by the Havens Center. And now, Nancy McLean, The Origins of Radical Right-Wing Power. I'll start with the obvious. American politics are in crisis, right? A government that is supposed to be of, by, and for the people is in crisis. Even elementary norms of civic decency and truth are in crisis. You know this. It has become abundantly clear of late to anyone who might not have been paying close attention before. But what you might be struggling to figure out is how we got here and what that means. The watershed that we've reached in our public life now has been fed by many streams, some of which have received extensive attention. Uh, Those streams include the movement conservatism that made Barry Goldwater the Republican candidate for president in 1964, just after his vote against the Civil Rights Act of that year. Uh, Another and related stream is the religious right. And then there is the white supremacist right, which has lately been trying uh, to rebrand 
brand itself. All of these are important and have produced the votes to affect radical policy change. But I'm here tonight to tell you about another piece of the puzzle of how we got into the dangerous situation in which we now find ourselves. A missing piece, I believe, and that is the ideas that are guiding the billionaire-backed radical right made notorious by Charles Koch. And I believe these ideas are the crucial piece that we have missed because they explain so much that otherwise seems mysterious. It's also crucial, I believe, because knowing about this piece may equip citizens such as all of us in this room to lead the way out of this mess before it is too late. Because I think there is an unmarked peril in our situation right now. And that is that the noisiest threats are getting the most attention. Among them, the chronic race baiting and bullying coming from the White House. But that spectacle, that daily, constant, nonstop spectacle, is drawing nearly all media and voter attention as an even more menacing plan is moving along apace. It is moving along in the now 30 states wholly dominated by this cause to the point that the Democracy Alliance speaks of them as having an electoral stranglehold. Uh, It is moving along in federal agencies, and it is moving along in the courts. And this plan is being pursued by a much smaller cause but by an archly determined and a breathtakingly well-funded one. More than that, this causes architects aim to rewrite the rules of our society permanently. And more than that, this cause has shown before that they are willing to use these other more popular sections of the right, the religious right and the white supremacist right, to get what they want. I'll state my case simply. Behind all the seeming chaos and dysfunction in American public life right now, there is a strategy in play, and that strategy is far along. One of its field generals said this to donors in late 2015. We're close to winning, he said. They, meaning the critics and the rest of us, don't have the real path. That was Mark Holden the head of Koch Industries Government and Public Affairs Operation, gloating to an invitation-only audience of billionaire and multimillionaire donors. Now, you've heard a lot uh, in the last several years, at least until the election of Donald Trump, uh, about the fortune that Charles Koch has been investing in changing our politics. But what you may likely not have heard about is the ideas uh, that technology, as Charles Koch refers to them, that have made those investments so devastatingly effective. And it's important to know that Koch had been funding libertarian intellectuals for three decades before he began to apply this technology in earnest. And now we can see that it has been devastatingly effective. And in the course of my research, I learned that it was an academic economist who taught Charles Koch that for capitalism of the variety that they want to thrive, democracy must be enchained. Democracy in Chains provides an unknown backstory of this defining moment uh, in history in which we find ourselves, as it also tries to uncover that real path to which Mark Holden referred. 
And it's in its essence, the book is a story of two men, a thinker and a CEO whose lives converged through a shared commitment to transform the model of government that our country built up over the course of the 20th century through citizen pressure uh, and organizing. The thinker was a Tennessee-born economist, James McGill Buchanan, who spent most of his career in Virginia institutions, beginning in Charlottesville. Uh, And the CEO is the Kansas-based, of course, Charles Koch, who spent most of his adult life when he wasn't building Koch Industries into one of the largest privately held corporations in the world, spent most of his life trying to find a way to make our country and the world, in fact, confirm to his arch vision of economic liberty a kind of free-reign capitalism akin to the 19th century variant that was skewered so brilliantly by Charles Dickens. That was also the kind of capitalism that brought us the Great Depression and the polarization between fascism and communism after World War I. So Koch's vision is an audacious one and a dangerous one. He is, to my mind, playing with fire, but it is the rest of us who will get burned. The story is first of the crucible in which Buchanan came up with this idea of enchaining democracy to insulate economic liberty. As the civil rights movement made headway in the Virginia where he was uh, working and in the nation as a whole in the late 1950s and 1960s. And then it is about how Koch funded an apparatus to make that idea a reality in a messianic quest that has produced the volatile situation we are now confronting. And I have to admit, up front, it's a frightening story, but I also believe that knowing what we're really up against is vital to assessing how best to defend a democracy that I think many of us now understand is facing existential threat. Rather than lecture in a conventional way, I thought what I would do is share with you the story of how I stumbled upon the trail that led me to these conclusions. Because I think that knowing the route that led to what I've just said will give you an even sharper sense of the stakes. Because it turns out that what we're seeing now, today, in 2017, is not the first time that the libertarian right has shown itself willing to exploit white supremacy to advance the cause of property supremacy. Also, the trail that led to these conclusions reveals the surprising role that some academics, some scholars, have played in bringing us to this point. Uh, and I think that's a history that all of us who work in higher education need to reckon with. So what led me to the fairly shocking conclusions that I just uh, shared? In a word, serendipity. I am not a historian of economic thought. Um, I uh, am a historian of social movements uh, with a particular longstanding interest in the U.S. South. And about 10 years ago, I came across the tragic tale of Prince Edward County, Virginia, whose white officials answered the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, call to desegregate uh, its public schools without further delay by, as the white county officials put it, going out of the public school business entirely. They shuttered their entire public school system. 
They actually posted no trespassing signs on the public schools. They left black children with no formal education whatsoever, uh, only what social movement organizations could provide, as their white counterparts headed off to private segregation academies funded with state-subsidized tuition grants with what we would today call school vouchers. And the county officials persisted in this course for five years until the courts compelled them to reinstate a public school system. So I was embarrassed that as a Southern historian, I had never come across this history. And I was deeply moved by what I found uh, in the archives of the American Friends Service Committee. And so I started to research this story. And Seeing that tax-funded school vouchers were crucial to the story interested me because this has often been told as kind of the last gasp of Jim Crow when, in fact, it was starting to look like maybe the first shout of neoliberalism. And lo and behold, I learned in short order that the University of Chicago ultra-free market economist Milton Friedman had issued his first call for school vouchers in 1955 in the full knowledge of how they would be used in the South. Southern segregationist officials, particularly governors, had been threatening for several years as the five cases that became Brown versus Board of Education wended their way to the Supreme Court. They had been threatening that they would shut down public schools rather than let black and white children sit next to each other under compulsion by the federal government. And Friedman did this. And I know he did it in the full knowledge of what he was doing because I had the correspondence between him and an editor who pointed out how this manifesto would be used and also pointed out that black citizens could not vote in Virginia, had no say over these devastating, destructive public policies that were being adopted. But Friedman persisted in his course. So he became part of my story. But in following a footnote, I learned of a 1959 report as this threat from Prince Edward County was in the air because it was in the fall of 1959 that they were told to finally desegregate. In 1959, two other economists who had set up a center for political economy and social philosophy at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in 1956 issued this other report. And one of them was this man, James Buchanan. And this report attempted to refute a movement of moderate whites that had come together over the fall of 1958 to try to preserve the public schools from this massive resistance. And Buchanan and his colleague were essentially trying to push back this moderate white movement by making a case that they didn't know how to do the math. And they were doing the math wrong because they were not realizing that if the state sold off all its facilities to private operators, those private operators would then have lower costs and they could provide better education, the economists argued, without uh, obeying the courts. They also used a lot of the language that would be familiar to us now, that it would break up the monopoly of schools, that it would bring competition, that it would bring freedom of choice, give parents a vote on where their kids went, and so forth. They did this in the full knowledge that the schools that would be funded this way and supported by this fire sale of public goods would be white segregation academies because those were the only private schools in question. Now, needless to say, it stunned me 
as a university professor to see two university professors making a case for what their state's most arch segregationists were seeking. That was the most radical demand of a group called the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberty, Virginia's equivalent of the White Citizens Councils of the Deep South. And they were seeking, in effect, this fire sale of of public uh, resources to to support their, their segregation academies. And it also intrigued me that these economists did not make their case in racist terms, as some at the time did, but instead in economic terms. And in fact, they were leveraging their authority as university professors and as economists, leveraging their discipline to back up the most right-wing anti-democratic figures of the day. So these two men, Buchanan and his colleague Warren Nutter, knew they were exploiting the school's crisis to move their libertarian agenda, an agenda for those of you who know the Mont Pelerin Society. They both were uh, uh, admitted to membership by then and were active uh, in that transnational uh, neoliberal group. And they were saying that this was part of what they called the free society, right? This libertarian agenda, even though they showed no sympathy whatsoever for the black civil rights activists whose slogan was freedom now. And in fact, whose First Amendment rights had been taken away by the same state legislature in the massive resistance program with no protest from the libertarians at the University of Virginia. And the cover letter that Buchanan and Nutter sent to Virginia elected officials, including one who had promoted these anti-NAACP laws, said that they were issuing their report and, quote, letting the chips fall where they may. I knew where those chips would fall. Anyone who was paying attention to what had happened in Virginia over the preceding three years knew exactly where those chips would fall. They would fall especially hard on black children and their families. That phrase just lodged itself in my gut somehow and kept me focused on this Buchanan and wanting to know more because I could see how whatever was in his mind, whatever he personally thought about uh, matters of race, he was acting in the full knowledge of the harm that these actions would inflict on children in Virginia's schools. And as an educator, I wondered, how could anyone do such a thing? Not in mindless ignorance, but in cold-eyed calculation. So trying to solve that puzzle, though, led me to another one that was equally mystifying because at the time I knew so little about libertarianism as an organized cause. It actually has been, for most of our history, utterly marginal, right, because these ideas are not persuasive to that many outside the ranks. The new shocker, as I started to pursue this James Buchanan, came in another tantalizing brief reference from a distinguished comparative political scientist. And uh, Alfred Stapon, this political scientist, mentioned in passing that Buchanan's Virginia School of Political Economy had a more important and lasting effect on Chile under the Pinochet dictatorship than Milton Friedman. And Everybody of a certain age who was following politics will have heard that Milton Friedman went to uh, Chile, uh, which was under the most brutal barbaric dictatorship that that, that led, that it helped fuel the human rights consciousness of the 1970s. It was so bad. Friedman went in 1975 to advise on how to combat inflation. That was well publicized. What wasn't well publicized was Buchanan's visit five years later. But at that point, when I 
learned of this, I still didn't know quite what the Virginia School was or how it differed from the Chicago School of Economics, which most of the Virginia faculty had attended. So I began to try to get more information about this guy, Buchanan. And I learned that he had won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences and that he was awarded the prize by the Swedish Academy for having pioneered a new way of thinking that uh, was called public choice economics. Uh, And this public choice economics became influential in uh, not only economics, but particularly political science and law and also among uh, activists and elected officials on the right. So what Buchanan did that was new was what he liked to call the economic analysis of politics. But his economic analysis of politics was very different from, say, another stream, like Marx's economic analysis of politics involved questions of class and power and whatnot. Buchanan's was very different. What he did was to apply Chicago-style individualist models to political actors and to argue that those political actors could only be understood as individuals seeking their own personal self-interest not the common good, as they claimed. And that led Buchanan to some interesting puzzle solving that, that, that drew attention. For example, he came up with a new explanation of deficits that has proved very persuasive uh, to many elected officials, too. Buchanan solved a puzzle that Keynesian economists had not, which is why governments would overspend, not just in times of uh, recession or depression, when you needed to get the economy going with government investments, but also in times of prosperity. And Buchanan's explanation was that officials' self-interest in re-election led them to make profligate promises to multiple constituencies in the knowledge that the cost would be borne by others, not by themselves. And this was persuasive to, to many people and drew a lot of attention, and it's not completely wrong. His particular training was in public finance, so a great focus on government taxation, on government revenue streams, on government spending, and so forth. But that interest in containing and rolling back government spending led also to a new emphasis on the incentives of the political process and how tweaking those incentives might yield very different outcomes. And I have to say here that those ideas have since interested people who are not on the right, most famously Cass Sunstein, who worked on regulatory matters under President Obama and thought creatively about how you could nudge incentives to improve public health, you know, doing things like, say, you know, moving uh, sugary cereal out of kids' reach in the carts down to the bottom or the top without, that doesn't infringe on anybody's freedom, but it might improve public health. So there's a wider school of public choice economics. But Buchanan's Virginia School of Political Economy was always distinctive. And Buchanan himself said, looking back, that when he set to work in the late 1950s, the idea of the public interest was dominant in politics, right? Now, we all know the public interest isn't a thing like this podium, right? But it's something that we construct through conversation and deliberation. But if you have an idea for how we might all be better off and you have a constituency to promote that idea and you persuade people, we might just get something like Social Security or the Wagner Act or the Civil Rights Act or, you know, many other uh, things uh, as we persuade people of what the public interest was. But Buchanan said, of this idea of the public interest, he said, that's what I wanted to tear down. 
to tear down. That's, that's his verb. And again, I thought, why would anyone want to do that, right? To tear down the idea of the public interest or the common good. Reading more, I learned that to a libertarian like Buchanan, there is no common good. Any such notion of shared purpose will lead government to coerce those who don't agree with the majority. And Buchanan and his colleagues came to argue that democracy violates the individual liberty of the minority. Now, the only minority I ever saw them express concern for was the wealthy minority. So that's who we're really talking about here, although he did not specify. But in the case of wealthy taxpayers who don't share the majority's view of the public interest, these men argued, it all but steals their property if it taxes them for purposes they don't share. And Buchanan, even in his academic writing, could be quite agitational about this. So in the book that he described as the, the major work of his career that came out in 1975, he said at one point, what difference is there between a mugger in Central Park that takes my wallet and a government that takes my taxes for purposes I don't support. So it was quite uh, agitational, uh, buried in game theory and all these other <laughs> other uh, frameworks. But basically, he was insisting that we are not our brother's keepers, right? Or at least we should not be using government to shift tax revenues from one citizen to another. And he also came to talk about all of this in very stark and foreboding terms. In fact, in a language that I think anyone could recognize as dehumanizing. He spoke of net tax recipients, in other words, people who get more from government than they give in in the way of taxes, people that Mitt Romney would later refer to famously as the 47%. Uh, Buchanan spoke of people who were net tax recipients as, quote, parasites on the productive. He warned of predators and prey. The predators would be people going to government, particularly in groups, seeking things that they could not get themselves as individuals in the market. Uh, so he used this language of predators and prey in a vocabulary that made fellow citizens, say senior citizens seeking a drug benefit or uh, uh, public sector workers seeking higher wages or smaller class sizes or, you know, whatever. But all of those groups he began to depict as predators and depict the wealthy taxpayers as their prey. Uh, needless to say, this is a vocabulary that is disinhibiting. It is a vocabulary that licenses hostility. And it is a vocabulary that is rife on the American right today, owing to decades of inculcation of these ideas. And as I read more, I learned, too, that for those who think this way, justice is a very simple matter. I keep what I earn, you keep what you earn. This is actually a direct quote from Buchanan's colleague, Walter Williams. Uh, and then you collectively can only legitimately tax me if I agree with your goals and methods. So in this libertarian view, only if there is unanimity can a purpose truly be said to be fair or advancing the common good. That's quite something. <laughs> Very hard to have a sustainable society with a system of unanimity as, as your desideratum. But Buchanan did not stop there. Uh, believing this way, in the 1970s, he moved from scholarship 
to organizing, began calling for the creation of a counterintelligentsia well before many others did in uh, uh, 1970. Um, And he also began arguing to funders on the right and to corporate allies and political allies that the right needed to create, again in his words, a gravy train in order to bring people into this cause, get them committed to these libertarian views, and get them to stay uh, in the movement. And he moved from analysis to prescription. He moved into what he called constitutional economics with the goal of coming up with a legal regime, a system of legal rules that could protect capitalism from government that could enshrine the rights of the wealthy minority to a degree no society anywhere had ever done. And he actually, on more than one occasion, said that by this measure, by uh, of protecting the rights of the wealthy minority from these predators, uh, all existing constitutions were failures. That's how radical this vision is. He didn't think any constitution anywhere in the world adequately protected this minority. And he found a very interested audience among the uh, generals in need of a new constitution in Chile in 1980. As the military junta of Augusto Pinochet uh, came under pressure from the international community to return to civilian rule at some point and to operate by law, by a constitution, not by brute force as it had been, they in Buchanan to Chile to advise on how to devise a constitution that could do this thing, that could protect capitalism from government. The dictatorship was willing to eventually cede power to a predominantly civilian government, but they wanted to make absolutely sure that the radical changes that they had affected when popular power was completely undermined, when you know, thousands of activists had been killed, trade unions were smashed, farmers' organizations weren't allowed to operate, student organizations weren't allowed to operate, there was no freedom of the press. They had done things like sharply privatized education, privatized health care. They went over to a system of individual retirement accounts for Social Security, which were invested with the financial sector, which eventually lost people's savings uh, after charging them a fortune. In any event, they wanted to lock in all of these things that they had accomplished, and Buchanan advised them on a constitution that could help them to do that. And in 2013, move the clock forward, Michelle Bachelet, a president who was elected by two-thirds of the Chilean people after huge mobilizations in the streets, particularly by young people who were angry over the higher education system and particularly the unaffordability of college, she came into office with this reform program and realized that what she called authoritarian trammels in this constitution were keeping her from delivering to that supermajority of the Chilean people. And she complained that this constitution of liberty, as Buchanan's allies called it, had put locks and bolts on what the government could do, on, how, on the people's ability to express their will through government. You're listening to Nancy McLean on the origins of radical right-wing power. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. 
here I think it's important to pause and say, we are not talking about checks and balances, okay? Check, you know, we're all for some kind of checks and balances. And, you know, in, in the United States, we would not have had the Brown decision, but for those checks and balances to protect minority rights. So checks and balances are important. But what we're seeing here is locks and bolts. And people, that kind of constitution is coming to America. Thanks to pressure from the Koch Donor Network, led by Charles Koch and the organizations he funds, the radical rich are seeking to achieve the kind of binding constitutional change that Buchanan urged without informing the public of their true goals. And thanks to assiduous organizing by the apparatus that these arch-right donors fund, and a Republican Party that they have all but taken over with the threat of primary challenges. Again, another new verb in our public life, to be primaried. We didn't used to have that, but that's how they keep elected officials uh, subservient to the donors rather than accountable to the voters. And the promise of dark money if they obey the donors. This cause now has in place 27 of the 34 states needed to call a constitutional convention. 27 of 34. Now, just to be clear, we have not had a constitutional convention in America since 1787, when that document was crafted by people who went to Philadelphia and did something other than what they were charged with doing. So there are rules on how you choose delegates, how, you know, how the process is set up to create such a convention but once you get to this convention it's open season the people there can do what they want and change the constitution as they will and the coke network is coming in to such a convention with about 10 what they call liberty amendments already in mind that would radically change our government and that would essentially undermine the kind of government that citizen action since the 1890s uh, has asked for And we are perhaps a few years away from this at the rate things are going. So it's really serious stuff. Now, you might be wondering how I put together how Buchanan's ideas were guiding this stealth plan of the radical right, which Mark Holden called the real real path. And the answer is, again, by coincidence, (laughs) I happened to move to North Carolina in 2010, right after President Obama won... uh, I mean, right after the, in 2008, Obama had won North Carolina by 14,000 votes. By the time I got back to North Carolina in 2010, a radicalized Republican party dominated by the Tea Party, funded by the Koch brothers and their North Carolina ally, uh, Art Pope, had just won majorities in both houses of the state legislature. And suddenly, the things that I was reading in Buchanan's work that still seemed so abstract as I was trying to understand this Chilean interlude became concrete and shocking. As uh, North, the North Carolina General Assembly's lead donor, this man Art Pope, his institution Civitas, boasted of the big bang his grantees were delivering as they made this once moderate state that prided itself on being the state that had moved from the poorest of southern states to the best off through public investments, this once moderate state became a laboratory for this right-wing cause. And 
So what did I see happening in this uh, big bang in North Carolina that really felt like, as you felt like in, in Wisconsin, a kind of shock and awe, application of the shock and awe doctrine of warfare, right? Where you hit people on so many fronts that they just feel overwhelmed and paralyzed. So Buchanan had long urged his teammates to focus, if they wanted to see radical change, to focus not on who rules, doesn't matter the personalities or even so much the parties, focus on the rules. And he explained to like thinkers and those who funded them, including Charles Koch, that if you wanted to get the kind of radical transformation that libertarians did and that most people did not want, and they understood that, then you had to focus laser-like on systematically changing the rules of governance. And what I watched unfold in North Carolina, you had your own version here, was a stunning barrage of radical rules changes on this model, one after another. Extreme gerrymandering to misrepresent the will of the voters. New measures to undermine workers' rights to organize in unions, particularly public sector unions, but not only those unions. Attacks on public education at all levels and radical cuts in funding for it while siphoning off public resources to private schools that were under no legal accountability to teach students anything. This is in the words of a judge. Repeal of a hard-won racial justice act to ensure fairness in policing and in the legal system, refusal to accept the Medicaid expansion of the Affordable Care Act, despite a crying need for health care among people who made too much to get uh, Medicaid and too little to be able to afford to buy health care, rolling back measures to protect the environment and reduce global warming. Throughout all of this, ending transparency and normal measures of governing, like hearings, uh, and then to cap it all off, what has come to be known as the Monster Voter Suppression Act that had some 15 different elements of ways of keeping away from the polls people who disagreed with this, including young people, including students. And what proved so disturbing to me, both as a scholar and a citizen, was that I could see that the new Republican majority was applying Buchanan's ideas to get what they otherwise could not Also unsettling, though, was watching how all the critics of all this, good, well-intentioned people who were shocked by the U-turn their beloved state was taking, how the critics were missing the deep operational strategy that unified all these far-flung measures. People genuinely could not see that the men pushing this agenda were not misinformed about the likely consequences of the agenda they were ramming through, They fully understood that it would inflict grievous harm on many of their fellow citizens. But they believed that their endgame was worth that price. They were, you could say, in cold calculation, letting the chips fall where they may. And what my fellow critics of all this uh, did not see, not even the brilliant Reverend William Barber, who created an inspiring movement called Moral Mondays to fight it, what the critics did not see is that this agenda was backed by an ethical system that gave these actors confidence and let them feel heroic enough to weather the criticism and the opposition. Now, this ethical system is foreign to most of us, and there's good reason for it, that, because it runs counter to all the world's leading religious traditions. 
but it is an ethical system and it has its own stark stark coherence that I believe we need to understand if we are going to deal with the crisis that Buchanan's ideas and Koch's money have created in America. To wit, the libertarian morality says that it would be better to have people die from lack of health care than to receive it from government, from taxes paid by others. And that really ultimately is what the architects of this cause mean when they talk about personal responsibility. They mean that you should be on your own. And if you fail to save for all of your future needs, you deserve your fate. Witnessing your suffering will also have educational value. It will teach others to save. Now, I have had six women in my life who have had breast cancer, including my own stepmother. And I know, and I think you know, if you know anyone who has had a serious illness in our society, that there is absolutely no way to save for catastrophic illness, just like there is no way to save for a long period of unemployment, just like there is no way to save on your own for your retirement. But according to this libertarian cause, that's really the dream society that each one of us from the time we're sentient should be having private savings accounts for all of those needs. Now, don't take it from me. Take it from the last uh, several months of the newspapers. Everyone was wondering why the Republicans in the Senate were rushing to push through these three horrific bills, one after another, that would have terrible consequences, that had no popularity anywhere. One of the ones that had the strongest chance to pass never polled more than, I believe it was 16%. Uh, they were not popular even with Republicans, and they had majority state in not one state in the union and yet the entire republican senate delegation was pushing these measures through at breakneck pace without traditional senate procedures you could only do this if you have this libertarian morality that says what i just said and also if you had this coke donor network on your back making sure that you did that or you get out of office because they will primary you now, I learned all this and more in 2013 when James Buchanan died, and finally that September, I got access to his private archive at George Mason University. And ironically, I arrived in Fairfax just as a government shutdown led by congressional Republicans who had been tutored in the ideas of this Virginia school was unfolding in Washington, D.C. Ted Cruz was the loudest among them, but there were many uh, and uh, unfolding in Washington at such cost to so many. And it, that was an application of the kind of coercive bargaining that Buchanan taught the right and his corporate allies. And in Buchanan's records, I found my developing understanding confirmed in a way that sometimes literally took my breath away. To give you just one example, in his private office, I found stacked helter-skelter on a chair, a pile of documents that exposed how Charles Koch and his operatives from uh, some of his organizations and the George Mason University economics faculty, its leaders, cooperated uh, to establish a base camp for this political project right across the Potomac from Washington, D.C. in a public university. 
And once I brought home all the hundreds of documents I had copied uh, in Buchanan's archives and put them together with his writings and other sources, I found myself laying down pieces of a puzzle that sometimes literally nauseated me in its sheer scope and audacity. Because it now encompasses literally uh, dozens of ostensibly separate national organizations, some of whose names will be familiar to you, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and there are many more. But if you include the state-level operations that make up the state policy network, uh, exposed so well by Lisa Graves from the Center for Media and, and Democracy here in Madison, if you include those in the international affiliates of the Atlas Network, which operates in 90 countries now, we are talking about hundreds of organizations working to radically alter government and society, funded by wealthy donors hostile to this 20th century model of government, who are determined to bring this free reign capitalism into being without being honest with the people about what they are doing. And as I took the measure of this project, I saw something else as a historian. The form of government that these men see as ideal, as liberty, mirrors that of mid-century Virginia in all but the state-forced racial segregation. When James Buchanan set to work in Charlottesville in 1956 at the peak of massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education, pledging to state leaders that he would set up the center to preserve liberty, that state had just been identified by the political scientist V.O. Key as the most oligarchical state in the South and therefore in the nation. And uh, this distinguished political scientist wrote, next to Virginia, Mississippi is a hotbed of democracy. That's how oligarchical Virginia was. And so here we come full circle to the civil rights era history with which I started. Because you have to ask yourself, what is the substance of James Buchanan's and Charles Koch's idea of liberty, but mid-century Virginia, the state subjected to what V.O. Key called the most thorough control by an oligarchy, with tools that would now be grafted onto the nation as a whole? Of course, the state-mandated racial oppression would go. This cause would not advocate for that. But nearly everything else about the political economy of mid-century Virginia enacts their dream, to wit, the uncontested sway of the wealthiest citizens, the use of right-to-work laws and other ploys to keep working people powerless, the ability to fire dissenting public employees at will, targeting educators in particular, voting rights restrictions to keep those unlikely to agree with the elite from the polls, the deployment of states' rights arguments to deter the federal government from promoting equal treatment, the suspicion of public education as a source of subversion, the regressive tax system and refusal to make forward-looking public investments, the opposition to Social Security and Medicare, and the parsimonious response to public needs of all kinds, from decent schools to public health and more. And the question that this stealth plan presents Americans with, once we know it, is at one level quite simple. 
Do we want to live in a cosmetically updated version of mid-century Virginia, a place that crushed democracy, prevented collective organizing, and suppressed human dignity to allow its elites free reign? A state that was determined, determined to prevent the kind of government that citizen action had demanded at least since the populist movement of the 1890s. A government that can stand up to corporations that ride roughshod over the people, that can protect workers' rights and public health, that can provide economic security to the aged, that can take action against discrimination, and that can ensure our air and water quality and the fate of our planet. All of this and more is at risk right now. And we have to ask ourselves, is what this cause seeks the kind of country that we want to live in and bequeath to our children and future generations? That is the real public choice. And if we delay our response much longer, those who are imposing their stark utopia will choose for us. Thank you. Yes. So the question is, did they address why the pre-tax distribution of earnings was, in their view, just and shouldn't be interfered with? And Buchanan, uh, according to his students and his colleagues, would often use this phrase, we start from here. And he would use that in two ways. One of them was to say, essentially, we have a given distribution of wealth, right? And we're not going to go back and revisit that. You know, and for a white Southerner to be saying that coming out of a society where in, in his own institution in Virginia, there were great historians like Paul uh, Gaston who were demonstrating how much had been taken, right, from African-Americans and poor whites in this oligarchical system. But again, he would say, we start from here. And he also used that phrase, we start from here, to think about how to get to this great libertarian beyond. So he didn't want, you know, kind of pie in the sky thinking, but instead practical measures for how to get from here to there. So uh, again, I think one more thing I would say about that too, is that, you know, his way of thinking and the kind of Austrian economics that he he's connected to just seems to refuse to acknowledge the existence of classes and therefore class power. It's all about individuals and how well they contract as individuals to fulfill their needs. So to me as a historian, it's, it's frankly an absurd way of thinking, but it has proven very influential. Ayn Rand is an important pathway into this libertarian cause and probably the most common pathway, particularly for young men who seem particularly attracted to these ideas. Women, not so much. Women have a sense of the consequences, I think, of, of this kind of thought and who would actually pick up the slack. But uh, so Ayn Rand was, no, it's true. And actually they've complained. They've complained. One of them said that um, men think like natural economists. You know, women just don't seem to get it. The Mont Pelerin Society at their 50th anniversary, uh, they were talking about problems that remain for whatever free free enterprise or whatever however they phrased it and they identified all of these problems but they said feminism was a problem and they said women are socialistic for no apparent reason Right? This is men who have taken women's labor for granted from the time they were this high, and they can't imagine that women might have reasons for things like wanting public, you know, quality child care or elder care or welfare policies to protect the people and provide a safety net, etc. Well, Buchanan always said he would talk about government as slavery. And he would say that it's better, I think he said it'd be better to be 30% slavery than 
70% or, you know, like that kind of language, right? So he would accept that there could be some legitimate role for government. And all the libertarians, as far as I know, at least most of them, would say that government has three functions. To provide for the national defense, to enforce the rule of law, including protecting property rights, and to guarantee social order. Beyond that, they should not go. And in fact, they are quite willing to use the state in a very heavy-handed manner against local communities. So, you know, the phenomenon called pre which again, Center for Media and Democracy has been great in drawing attention to that. That is a version of what they were doing in mid-century Virginia by telling, having the governor shut down schools in local communities that were going to comply with the courts. That was preemption. Now we have preemption telling us we can't raise local minimum wages or enact anti-discrimination ordinances, etc. I would say Chile, if you look at that constitution in Chile, it does put on those locks and bolts on what the people can do. That Chilean constitution was important. And various countries have tried parts of this. So New Zealand had this kind of neoliberal burst for a while and then said, you know, and, and reversed it. But Buchanan's center hired this guy, Morris McTeague, who was part of that and brought him to George Mason. And he's still telling people how to privatize. Uh, Jose Piñera, who directed the Social Security privatization as Minister of Labor in Chile in uh, the 1980s, was hired at the Cato Institute to promote Social Security privatization here in the U.S. and internationally. So I would say, you know, there's various places where they've made more or less advance, but no place where they've gone whole hog. There was also recently an article by uh, the journalist who's been following the coax, Lee Fang, talking about how this at network is making significant headway in Latin America. Frankly, also, I mean, some people have pointed out, like, these people want you to buy into a notion of society that exists nowhere in the world, right? (laughs) Nowhere. Um, And radically change all your institutions to enable it. So um, some caution might be an order on that, right? I mean, at this point, it is quite a rigid dogma. The question was, uh, you know, you you pointed out how they are willing to use white supremacy and um, the kinds of of, uh, prejudices of the religious right to gain power. But what about the way that they are changing, trying to change the way we think through installing these bases in universities? And that is a really key part of the strategy. And George Mason University is the flagship case of that kind of collaboration. And you can see those George Mason people essentially provide defense, well, providing strategic help and technical assistance for this operation, supplying a pipeline of talent, and that's what they're doing on campuses, is trying to identify, recruit, and fund students that they can bring into the apparatus. Um, But also, they run uh, defense for things that their people are doing out in the world. Um, So the the, the campus bases are, are really important. The question was, what about the commonwealth, right? What about the commons, the things that we have built up together that we rely on, you know, like clean air and water and things like public higher education and all those good things we've built up over the years. And the answer to that is that uh, this broader um, uh, cause has, has come up with this argument of the tragedy of the commons, right? To say that allegedly, if you hold things in common, there won't be an incentive to maintain them. And therefore, we would just be better off 
privatizing so that the owners will presumably take good care of things. Uh, I don't think that is exactly how things will work at all, having observed, for example, the private school providers in my own state and the way that they are bilking the public to provide substandard education. In every domain you can think of, there are investors who are hungry for these public monies. For example, in Wall Street, among the hedge fund people, you know, there are people who are literally salivating at the notion that there's something like $800 billion worth of government money going into education that they think if you could put it into the private sector, imagine the profits you would make by teaching children by computers with no human beings, right? Um, so, uh, so I don't buy their account, but that is their account. And I will say, in my book, I was focused on this threat to democracy, on this notion of, you know, uh, enchaining uh, the Leviathan, as Buchanan referred to it. Uh, but there is so much going on that this cause is involved with, including threats to the Western lands. They're very angry at the fact that the government owns a lot of land in the West. They would like to see that privatized. They would like to cut into the national park system. So there's a lot to pay attention to right now if we care about the commons. Thank you. That was Nancy McLean on the origins of radical right-wing power. She spoke in Madison, Wisconsin. Nancy McLean is the author of Democracy in Chains. She's professor of history and public policy at Duke University. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media education organization, Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Glenn Greenwald, Trita Parsi, Henry Giroux, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Naomi Klein, Richard Wolfe, and Vandana Shiva. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Nancy McLean on the origins of radical right-wing power, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Norm Stockwell. Joe Ichi is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Floyd Blackhorse, and I'm from the Sixaga Nation, sometimes known as the Sexy Guy Nation. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from Calgary, Alberta, the land of the Treaty 7 people, which includes the Blackfoot, people of Sixaga, Bikani, and Kainai, the Dene people of Sutina. 
and the stony Nakota people of Morlach, including Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations, and the Métis Nation of Region 3. Oh 